0: Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host Frank Troyce, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way we're not going to follow a scripted organized discussion but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind and more importantly ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues and with that let's get on with this week's edition of unhedged today's broadcast is brought to you today by oracle oracle helps customers develop roadmaps migrate to the cloud and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point these include new cloud deployments on-prem environments and hybrid implementations oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows for more information go to sohocap.com slash unhedged and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners Well, good stuff. All right. So let's kick this off. So Shannon Brown, again, thank you very, very much for your time here today. And how is the weather in sunny California? It is not bad.
1: It's it's not nearly as dreary as it was yesterday. We had driving rain, and today I would say it's probably in the mid-50s, so I'm not going to complain.
0: <laughs> That's not bad. That's not bad. And uh, you're there for uh, just a few more days, and then you head back to D.C., or are you heading back up north?
1: Uh, no, back to D.C. just for a little bit.
0: Oh, good deal, good deal. Well, again, we really appreciate you taking the time here today. And in full disclosure to our listeners, uh, I've managed to coerce Shannon to helping us out at uh, Soho Capital, which is our company. And uh, Shannon has so graciously uh, endeavored to to uh, make me look a heck of a lot smarter than I actually am. And Shannon, one of the reasons why I'm um, uh, candidly flattered, honored uh, in having your involvement with with the company is I've always found your counsel on so many of, one of the events that are occurring worldwide of, of tremendous, tremendous value. So uh, one, I'd be remiss if I didn't say thank you for that.
1: No, thank you, and and I'm delighted to be here, honestly. And I, of course, I have to follow your uh, comments with uh, just a real quick disclaimer. It's it's kind of a stock thing for academics who work for the government. Um, I am employed by the U.S. government, uh, the United States Navy specifically, and so any of the things that I talk about today, any opinions I express, or any comments that I make, um, are strictly my position. They do not represent the views of the U.S. government, the U.S. Navy, the Defense Department, any government institutions. So now that we've gotten that out of the way. Go ahead. I'm also I'm also delighted and honored to be here. So thanks again for inviting me on.
0: Oh, fantastic. And, and you know, it was interesting as we were setting this up, um, it was interesting earlier today, uh, Fareed Zakaria, Uh, Had a recent update that he put out there saying that basically, and and again, recognizing you may need to recuse yourself from some questions and that's absolutely fine. But uh, Zakaria made the point that there is no foreign policy in the Trump administration today. And I'm wondering if from 50,000 feet, if you could, A, comment on your thoughts on that, and then B, maybe we could use that as a start to... Is, a, is what has happened with Iran uh, representative of that? And I think our listeners would be very, very uh, curious as to your thoughts on that. Sure. So I think, I think the first way I would
1: respond to that question is to suggest that the administration has really, from the very beginning, been focused pretty exclusively on domestic issues and domestic policy. Um, a lot of the rallies the president has conducted uh, kind of reinforce this idea that the focus of the administration is really on protecting the economy, protecting American workers, doing what can be done by the federal government to insulate certain people from eco- economic disruption um, or, or disruptions to specific sectors of the of, of the American economy. And um, there is a general feeling, I think, among people in Washington, D.C., certainly among people that I, I talk to, um, some of whom are in government and some of whom are uh, academics, that this has led to um, a, a lot of our foreign policy focus being given short shrift, that uh, there isn't quite the same uh, emphasis of, uh, on Looking at foreign policy issues, especially the broad range of issues that the administration has faced since uh, the President took office. Um, and so, I don't want to suggest that that the government has been um, has ignored what's been happening around the world. I think that there is a very a very effective community of people serving in government right now um, within the Defense Department, within many of the other executive branch agencies who are deeply interested in what's happening overseas and are working very, very hard to protect American interests, to to look out for American citizens, um, to do what can be done to protect protect, uh, the sort of uh, American presence around the world. But there certainly does seem to be uh, the, the impression that and foreign policy is not really the priority, and certainly not foreign policy that isn't directly connected to conflict. Um, and so, I, I think that's that's where I would start with uh, with that question.
0: Well, let, let's take that a step further because uh, you know there's a, there's a subtlety to that in terms of focus. So if we if, if we look at McConnell in the Senate, and if we look at the past week, there was a you know I would say larger than normal number of Foreign Service nominations that were returned to the president. Uh, so, in a, you know, somebody objectively could look at that and say, OK, this isn't a priority uh, for this administration. But at the same time, uh, McConnell does seem focused. You know, obviously, in addition to keeping his majority, he does seem very, very focused on these judicial appointments. And, you know, is there any merit to to just saying, you know, as far as McConnell's concerned, he's being very clear about what he's focused on, what he wants to achieve. And as a consequence of that, you know, that, yes, foreign policy is not a priority for him. No, I think that's fair. And
1: I think that there are a number of people who have been writing about this preoccupation with judicial appointments, at least for the past two years, because people outside of government, people associated with the Federal Society and other conservative leaning organizations had made no secret of the fact that there was a wave of retirements happening within the federal judiciary. And that this is a prime opportunity to position people who have a certain ideological orientation or or have uh, certain predilections or certain preferences, um, whether it's originalism or whether it's uh, an interest in uh, specific kinds of rights issues, that now is the time to put people on the bench. Um, and I, I really do believe, uh, just based on things that I've read, based on things that I've heard, and the behavior of the Senate itself, in moving very quickly with some confirmations, including confirmations of people who were judged to be either unqualified by external actors like the American Bar Association, or people who were politically um, sensitive, uh, people whose backgrounds or whose past judgments were being very, very closely reviewed by uh, pundits, by by, by commentators who take a, a deep interest in judicial appointments. I think it's fair to say that that has been the priority
0: Interesting, and you know there was there was this week as well. Uh, Ian Bremmer, who who is a well-known political commentator and and, and analyst, he he made a a, uh, a tweet that garnered a tremendous amount of attention, where he said, "Look, I'm basically not a big fan of Trump." But from his standpoint, this was a big win for Trump as it relates to conservatives, where, you know, if we shift to Iran, he he took very clear action. He he drew a clear dividing line in terms of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And Bremer's point was, guess what? This actually was a win for the president as irrational as it may have, may have seemed at the time. So this is an interesting idea, and it's something that has
1: generated a lot of debate, not just in Washington, but in places like London, um, you know, other capitals where there is a, a core group of people who are deeply interested in security issues. Um, there was a lot of discussion in the immediate aftermath of the um, the uh, the action that the administration took in Iraq that. Uh, we were going to see a return to deterrence, the idea that, that, that strategic deterrence or conventional deterrence was somehow going to be reestablished as a principle in foreign policy, specifically American foreign policy. And I think that in some ways, what Ian Bremer was responding to was that that topic, that, that notion. Um, and so when Bremer made that judgment uh, I, I think that your your listeners or any, any uh, individual who's been watching the situation over the past couple of days unfold needs to really give some deep consideration to what deterrence actually is in international relations today. Uh, what does it actually mean to deter an adversary or to deter an opponent? Because there is an argument to be made that the administration took action, um, an action that domestically has been called into question by legal scholars about whether or not Um, proper notifications were made, or if the act itself was in fact illegal, given our current structures. And internationally, I think there is a question uh, that's been raised by quite a few people about whether or not the Iranians came away from this having the upper hand because of the restraint they showed in the response. And you can argue about whether or not one missile or eight missiles or 10 missiles is restraint. Uh, and there's a lot of tea leaf reading going on right now in Washington, D.C. about how to interpret the Iranian response. But it's an interesting idea that that the administration gets its win, but at the same time, the Iranians being judged by outsiders can also claim a win because they retaliated. They retaliated with what people in security studies would call proportionality, proportionality. Um, and they left open the possibility of future retaliation, but gave no indication that they are looking at specific targets or they're looking to go after specific people um, in a kind of tit-for-tat situation.
0: And and given that rationality, just to play devil's advocate, doesn't that by default mean that ironically diplomacy now is an option and, and that we can re-engage with Iran? Or 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 you know, given that tit for tat and clear black and white dividing lines around things, or or is it still off the table given this administration? No, in fact, just yesterday, there was uh,
1: there were reports that the United States has signaled to the United Nations that they are willing to begin discussions with Iran immediately, I mean, unconditionally, but there are no strings attached. Just give us an indication that you'd like to have a discussion about this conflict, and and, and we will oblige. And that's a significant gesture. I mean, it shows that there is some rational acting. There's some rational thought on the administration side, And if the Iranians choose to respond, if they don't make uh, a big deal out of this, or if they don't uh, try to use this as some kind of symbolic victory that they have somehow brought the United States to the negotiating table, that could result in some very productive discussions. So I think in some ways, Rimmer is correct, the administration may have actually created the conditions for a new kind of diplomacy. Right around the same time that those reports were being disclosed that the United States had reached out to the United Nations, um, the Secretary of State, gave uh, instructions to people working for the federal government that they were to discontinue any contact with Iranian dissident groups or Iranian organizations. Um, And there's been, again, a lot of tea leaf reading. What is the significance of the fact that the administration's expressed public position now is that they do not want people talking to the MEC. And and the MEK is one of a number of organizations, um, Iranian organizations, that... uh, this administration, um, members of this administration, and um, and other people who have connections to other administrations have had discussions with and have actually participated in public events, with uh, with those folks. So so there is something I think to Bremer's comment, but I think just like I would ask your readers to consider what deterrence means in the 21st century, uh, what do you really mean by diplomacy, um, and what is engagement? What what is the the, the the best possible outcome for any kind of diplomatic engagement between these two parties uh, at, at the present moment.
0: Okay. And, and where where is this being driven from? I mean, one of the news reports that was most interesting, especially, uh, candidly, especially for me, was hearing that it was actually Pompeo who had been driving this and that Pompeo, in fact, was the one who had been socializing it between DOD and CIA to to... Make clear that even way ahead of this, that that Soleimani was an outcome that he wanted, uh, which candidly I found surprising. So the the so it, you know was this in fact is that is that what we're hearing now that in fact this 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 was coming from state. There's also been some uh, talk that Pence uh, as as VP was also more involved than this than folks would assume, or is that just gossip uh, in the hallways of Washington? I, I think it's going to be a while before we
1: really get a clear picture of the decision-making process behind that action. Um, I've also read the same reports, and there, are, there do seem to be indications that uh, Pompeo, the secretary of the state, was actively lobbying for some kind of action to be taken, if not specifically against this individual, then against Iran. And that, that kind of activity, that, that if you want to call it lobbying, had been going on for some time. Um, it's going to be a while before we really get a clear picture of who is involved in those discussions. Um, there is another uh, another interpretation that's been circulating in Washington for the past couple of days that this action, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, some of the expected follow-on, uh, the, the the response that some people were anticipating to the Iranian response, if I can frame it that way. Um, is very much the product of a cohort of people who participate in the interagency decision-making process both in the Defense Department and possibly in other agencies who would like to take some kind of military action against Iran because many of them served in Iraq many of them actually see Iran as one of the principles behind American difficulties in Iraq and um, and there's no doubt that, uh, that Iran, that regime, has had a hand in influencing events in Iraq, and that, that, that is true. It goes back many, many, many years. Um, and that, again, to, to use a kind of shorthand, the interpretation is that that cohort, which would be military officers on active duty, retired military officers now working in civilian positions, um, are actively seeking some kind of payback. Um, they are looking for an opportunity to punish the Iranians for actions taken a decade ago or even longer ago. So, again, I think that uh, anything that your your listeners read with regard to the decision-making process in this particular instance should be taken with a grain of salt because it's going to be quite some time before we actually get really good clarity on what the decision-making mechanism was. One of the criticisms that was, was leveled immediately after the... Uh, the uh, the action was taken in Iraq, was that it wasn't entirely clear that the Defense Department had thought through all the different worst case scenarios that might have come about as a result of that strike, and that many of the planning mechanisms maybe weren't in place, and that many of the possible outcomes that, uh, as part of a, a sort of Decision-making exercise, or as part of an options development exercise, many of the the uh, the, the possible outcomes from that that uh, that strike hadn't really been considered. Um, and again, we're not going to know. It's going to be it's going to be a while before we really get a lot of of uh, information about the actual decision-making process. But it is interesting to see what we- little bits of of information that are slowly kind of of of, of um, uh, coming out of the administration.
0: Now, it's interesting. If we, if we go slightly around the world to, to Asia, one of the other interesting conversations I had this week is that uh, North Korea now definitely has to be watching this with concern. And a- along that, you know, here, here you had with Iran a counterpart who had agreed in some way, shape, or form to a framework where they were going to uh, denuclearize. Um, and here's an outcome that comes from that. And so I would imagine in North Korea, folks are pointing to that, they're pointing to Libya. And is this, is this something where, is North Korea looking at this and saying, okay, we're, we're hearing some clear black and white language from the Indo-Pak command. Uh, is this something where North Korea engages or do they dig in their heels and say, absolutely not. We're not giving up anything because now we see in Iran, the moment you try to do anything here with the US, this is the outcome. You know people, people are assassinated uh, as a function of what's there. So where does this put our policy here now in 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 the Asia region uh, regarding the Korean Peninsula?
1: Well, I think you've you've identified another key term, another concept that dates back a, a decade and a half that has it we're getting to revisit it now, and that concept is the idea of decapitation uh, and, and and whether it's the decapitation of a regime or the decapitation of a non-state actor um, or the decapitation of an individual who is linked both to a regime and proxies for that regime, um, the how other states, especially states that are seen as adversaries of the United States or who's, you know states that identify themselves as adversaries of the United States and its allies, are likely to take away from this, instance, this incident um, is that in order to avoid decapitation, you have to have an effective deterrent, whether that deterrent is nuclear or chemical or biological. And this is something that many scholars working in international relations have been discussing, arguing about for at least 15 years, possibly longer. Um, and I think the North Koreans, again, my prediction is that they're going to continue developing their program. Um, the, 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 there is a general awareness of the fact that Western countries have an aversion to casualties. Um, and I think there is an awareness on the part of leaders of regimes that see the West as adversarial, that the best way to ensure deterrence and to avoid the possibility of decapitation. And when I say that, I mean regime decapitation, the systematic elimination of senior leaders is to create the conditions that make it possible for them to inflict a lot of harm on their attackers. Um, And I'm not, you know, this is not unique to me. This is not just my position. I think there are quite a few people, people who work in strategy and policy um, who have voiced this concern over the years. So returning to your question, I don't see any significant change coming in the near future to uh, to the the North Korean nuclear development policy. I, I cannot I cannot imagine them disarming disarming in the near future um, because it's not entirely clear to me what they would gain from that. What benefit would come from giving up what is probably a pretty effective deterrent. That's a very good point.
0: And I I think, too, it was interesting this morning to hear that, that in fact, that it looks like there may have been a second attempted attack in Yemen with another Iranian leader of the Quds Force. And it, 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 it's fascinating, because if we go one layer deeper, or one layer up, you know, I would imagine now, uh, let me ask you a two part question. Uh, In regards to Iran, you know, Soleimani was was running around the region with impunity. So I mean, there were Ample occasions to to uh, kill this individual, which were never taken. Um, and obviously, you, you know, if, if you're in Russia, Putin has to be looking at this situation, reassessing, you know, what this means. Suleimani being a key actor uh, in in the in the region, and at the same time, for China, you know, what do you think their thoughts are in regards to again using using North Korea as a proxy, where? Uh, you know what? What's their takeaway from this messaging? So now, you know, if we look at both Iran and North Korea as proxies for the ultimate discussion, you know, what what are your thoughts on what Putin is thinking, and what are your thoughts on what Xi Jinping is thinking right now?
1: Well, I actually think they're both observing. They're watching very closely to see how this administration deals with the the, the military and diplomatic challenges that come out of this particular scenario. Um, it's a point that many people have made, and I'll I'll make it right now for the the benefit of your listeners. This 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 targeted event that happened in Iraq was a choice. Um, it was a strategic choice. Now, there is a lot of argument about whether or not decapitation, whether it's of a proxy, a non-state actor, or a sovereign state, is really strategically wise. Um, there are, in fact, a couple of folks... Uh, uh, Jenna Jordan and Austin Long are two scholars who have looked very closely at the question of whether or not the decapitation of individuals who were part of transnational organizations like terrorist organizations has any effect whatsoever on that on those organizations' ability to continue to wreak havoc, generate resources. Um, Know, have have uh, uh, finances at their disposal um, and I think that their research has demonstrated pretty conclusively that it doesn't really matter um, that, that decapitation under certain conditions and when you're targeting certain kinds of people doesn't really have any effect at all and so as a strategy decapitation probably doesn't deliver the kind of outcome that states expect when they pursue a policy like that. Tactically, it may have value. And from a signaling standpoint, it may have value. It demonstrates pretty clearly that that uh, the state can reach out and touch someone, regardless of where they are and regardless of who they are. Um, but there is a calculus involved in that. If you strike somebody who is a high-value target um, and that that individual has an extensive network that may or may not be sanctioned by a state that we would consider an adversary, there may be consequences. And this is Another issue that's going to emerge here in the coming weeks and months that people who work in the intelligence community are probably looking at very closely, the Iranians and some of their proxies are really good at engaging in operations, especially cyber operations, where attribution is really difficult. And it's either difficult because they're good at masking who they are, or it's difficult because they're going to target institutions, organizations that are not likely to disclose the fact that they've been attacked. And so... Um this is, again, it remains to be seen what's going to happen going forward in the aftermath of this event. And I think that both the Chinese and the Russians are watching with with great intent uh, to see how things play out.
0: Is there a I, I was talking with another colleague back in back in New York and he's a poker player, and he's also a big fan of CIA movies and and uh, he loves using this expression, you know, a useful idiot. And you know, part of part of the calculus that, that I, I was he and I were sharing together was he said, you know, he goes, it's really interesting because he said you figure that Suleimani was on a target list forever for years, you know, that he was always there and he was always again, you know, traveling through the region with impunity. But is part of this, you know, did the DoD have a useful idiot in the president, and in effect, to use a Wall Street term, a free call option, meaning? So much of the communication when it first came out was at the directive of the president. There was a lot of hedging language around, you know, the DOD gave the president 10 options. This was the 10th option and he chose it. Um, So it seemed at the time that it was a very impulsive, irrational decision that he made at Mar-a-Lago. And... It is a part of it, when I was talking with my colleague, he said, yeah, he said, you know, this was perfect because it goes back to Nixon with Vietnam where it was the madman theory where, you know, on the one hand, if it fails, well, it's Trump and it's supposed to fail because he was the one who thought of it. Whereas if it works, then you can backfill later with, hey, there was actually more of a process behind this, i.e. maybe Pompeo had been socializing this and DOD had been thinking about this in a much more strategic way. And the only, the only thing to lend credence to that and again, I would be curious as to your response, as I think what you just said is really important because uh, Iran's response publicly was very, very, and has been very proportional. Whereas, and again, to your point, there could be a whole cyber effort underway now that we're not hearing about because we, we simply can't identify it. But publicly, it's been very proportional. So to me, this strikes me as almost game theory 101. And, and in fact... You know trump may have not been involved in this at all he may have just been the green you know the rubber stamp down at mar a lago so you know is it the madman theory or in fact has there been given a lot more thought to this and dod to your point maybe they didn't plan for everything uh but the the, the reality is that that there is much deeper thought in regards to what steps two three and four might look like as a consequence
1: you know, I think that's that's a really good question, and I, I, I would I would step away from the use of the word madman and maybe think of this more in terms of useful instrument. Um, that that there, I think there have been times uh, with different presidencies where the bureaucracy, uh, whether it's the Defense Department bureaucracy or the larger interagency whole of government bureaucracy, has had a hand in driving presidents towards certain kinds of executive decisions or encouraging to them to consider. Really radical options, and, and the, the one example that comes to mind is the Cuban Missile Crisis and the kinds of options that were initially offered to President Kennedy, and you know his response to those options. Uh, if you go back and look at the literature on that on that moment in our history, his response was to say, "No, these are unacceptable options. Uh, go back and try again. Uh, it's possible that." given the narratives that are circulating right now in Washington about how this decision was reached uh, and the argument that is taking place right now within the foreign policy academic community about whether or not this was really a well thought out plan or whether or not the interagency process had done all the things that it was supposed to do in developing options and thinking through consequences and thinking through incident mitigation if there was going to be some kind of response, that that may very well, it may very well be that the, the, that this was presented to the president as a unique opportunity something that had to be done with haste and the defense department could always take the position that they just didn't have time to think through all of the different possibilities that could result from from this particular uh, this particular strike so I think it's, again, one of these things that we all collectively will learn more about in the the weeks and months and years to come. Um, And historians at some point here in the future uh, will begin talking to people, interviewing people, looking for documents, looking for corroboration about how this decision was actually reached. But the, the useful instrument interpretation of executive decision making is certainly not Limited to this particular instance. This is something that uh, that that historians and political scientists have been thinking about writing about for for quite some time
0: So how now and if you can indulge me in one last question and you've been very very good with your time and patience today, and I appreciate it now let let's shift to the political hay that can be made of this so and and again without calling him as a front-runner, but you know if you're Joe Biden and, and and or a likely Democratic nominee uh, for president, how do you how do you leverage this? Because on the one hand, there's the you know we killed Osama bin Laden part of this that that that's there, uh, and on the other, there's the the you know if we assassinated him, that's illegal. So the the you know so how do you make political hay of this as as a Democratic nominee, and and how do you leverage this going into November?
1: Well, I think there are a couple of different interpretive options that any candidate could have going forward. One is the one that you just pointed out, which is the legalistic uh, interpretation to, to, to actually say as part of a campaign strategy that, that this was either an abuse of power or it was yet another example of the breakdown between the uh, the executive branch and uh, the legislature that uh, presidents do actually have uh, a duty to Notify Congress that uh, there are indications that there was no congressional notification in this in this instance, um, and you just sort of add it to the list of things that indicate that the relationship between the executive and the legislative um, has been has been damaged, has been undermined, um, and you use that as part of a part of a, a campaign strategy as a as a platform plank to say that part of what I will do is try to rebuild that relationship, rebuild the trust between the branches of government. So I think that's one approach, and then another approach is to focus on the international relations diplomacy angle. We can't make any assumptions right now about how American and Iranian diplomacy is going to develop moving forward in the aftermath of this uh, this of this strike. But there is probably hay to be made from the notion that this one episode may have set back U.S.-Iran relations by years or decades, that whatever trust had been developed, whatever negotiations had been taking place, either through back channels or uh, in in sort of uh, public spaces, um, has been impaired by this particular episode, Um, that despite the fact that the Iranians showed a great deal of restraint that there wasn't an overwhelming response that led to a further escalation, the fact that both sides managed to find what political scientists sometimes refer to as an off-ramp in the the escalation of the crisis, that um, this still creates a long-term strategic diplomatic problem and it's yet another thing that will have to be resolved by the next administration. So I think those are two approaches that, that any candidate could take. But there are a lot of things that are up in the air right now. Um, we may learn more about the decision-making process itself. We may learn more about diplomacy moving forward. We may learn more about uh, the, the, the de-escalation or the restraint that the Iranians used, um, which could paint that regime in a more positive light. Um, so it's it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. And if any of the presidential Contenders uh, from the Democratic Party actually try to make reference to this episode. I keep calling it an episode, like we're on a podcast. But if this if this moment in in our history, um, in the history of this administration, actually becomes either a point of discussion or a talking point in the next debate.
0: Yeah, they they near term it seems that the the democrats have to be careful because any form of of uh, maturity and how they discuss this could be seen it, it seems that the conservative right of the republicans are now using any democrat who tries to talk about this where they just pull it back to well you're an iranian sympathizer and and right, you know right. this was this was the problem all along so it's a it's an interesting catch-22 and at the same time you know the the if Iran was to escalate, yes, short term, that that might feed into the democratic messaging. But on the other end, you know, a war might be just absolutely all Trump needs to have to get reelected and and right. uh, for his next term. Yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting thing. And I, I, I you know, my sense is personally based on conversations that I've had is that it, it really will come down to at, at a minimum the definition of whether or not. Um, you know, was, was this an assassination or was he a terrorist? You know, what's the legal definition around this? And, uh, and, and, and one, one last thing I think too, you know, the, the, you know, as, as you and I have discussed on occasion, the fact that the Senate, you know, McConnell does have a focus right now in terms of keeping that majority in the Senate. So there, there, which also is in flux and, and, uh, so the calculus here has a few moving pieces. And part of me feels that if you are Ron right now, do you do you just slow this? This will be my last question. Do you do you slow roll it going into November with, you know, kind of do what China's doing, kind of doing what North Korea is doing and, and just wait to see who's going to be president come, uh, you know, come the uh, post election? Or is there any benefit to trying to do anything now? No, I, I think that, you know, the, the Iranian regime is really savvy. I think that they are very technology
1: savvy and they they are very astute when it comes to you know, analyzing American media and understanding how American voters respond to certain kinds of messages um, not as sophisticated as some other countries that have been accused of, of using social media and other kinds of technology to try to influence the behavior of American voters or to shape the discourse in the United States. But but the Iranian regime, nonetheless, is, is very aware of the fact that this is an election year. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think if, if, if I were in a position of, of authority in that government, I would be advocating very strongly for restraint um, and make a series of symbolic gestures that demonstrate that there isn't going to be an escalation, um, that I think you can communicate to people across the world that that the regime demonstrated restraint, but there are always non-military options that can be exercised. And when I say non-military, I'm really saying that there are non-military targets that can be struck if there is a further escalation or if the United States wants to continue pushing on uh, the the there was a term of art that was being used in Washington to talk about the pressure that was being applied to the Iranian regime on various fronts to try to shape their behavior in the region, and I think that uh, you know the Iranians are sensitive to that, and I think that they learned from the global response, the economic response, and the response of the markets when the Aramco facility was struck a couple of months ago, that. Mm that these little tiny shocks, these small moments um, that really don't require a lot of the wave resources, um, can really, really have an effect not just on markets, but also on world opinion. And mm-hmm. so I think that the Iranians have, have an awareness of the fact that they, they have a long history of using non-conventional, non-military um, mechanisms. To, to strike out at their adversaries, and uh, the rest of the world is also aware of that. And so, I think that uh, they can, on the one hand, in a very public way, talk openly about the fact that they are showing restraint in their relations with other countries um, after this this particular episode, but that there are other cards they can play if they choose to. And uh, and we may say that we may see that messaging moving forward.
0: Good stuff. Well, on that note, Shannon, this was a fantastic conversation. I think as our listeners are already aware of and as I shared with you ahead of time, we easily could have been on on this uh, session for another two, three hours, and and we merely just lightly scraped the surface of of, uh, where the discussion could have gone. And then selfishly, Uh, As you and I have discussed, and for folks listening in, uh, we will have Shannon on repeatedly uh, throughout the year. So I think given, especially going into an election year, this is going to be a fantastic time uh, to compare notes. So, Shannon, thank you very, very much again for your time here today. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on the show. Good deal. Shannon, thank you again for our listeners. Have a wonderful weekend and tune in next week for Unhedged. We'll talk to you soon. And that'll do it for this week's segment of Unhedged. As always, thank you for tuning in and we'll look forward to talking and speaking next time. Take care.